Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hey, Robert. Hello. How you doing today? I'm good. Yeah. Hey, Hoy. Hey, Jeff. Hey, is, is Barnabas AC18 Adam? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> hey, Robert. Hello, Hoy. Uh, Jeff and Adam. Hey, Robert. Hey, Robbie. How you doing? Jeff. Hey, Robbie. Hey, hey how's Robbie. it going? There we go. Hold Robert. on. Change the name here. I think the only other person we're expecting at this point is Brandon Cruz, and we'll okay. see if he joins us or not. Um, Oliver was going to be on it, but he just um, emailed saying he isn't going to be able to make it. I think he's uh, busy shipping out uh, the uh, New Edge Sword and Sorcerer. I think it's about to be in everybody's sweaty little palms very soon. So <laughs> That's very exciting. exciting. That was yeah. not the reason yeah. cited. The reason cited was new puppy-related reasons. Mm. Okay. Equally good. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver and puppies seems like a thing that goes together. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is going to be released to the um, the main channel. Um, is Sir Kendrick. Oh, there we go. Brandon. Hello, Brandon. <clears throat> yes. This is my uh, Harn name. Change. Is this oh, Ash new? <laughs> Brandon, is the stash new? Well, it's been a while, hasn't it? It uh, summertime, yeah, yeah, yeah. Summertime, yeah. okay, cool, cool. <laughs> um, sweet. So, I want to just go ahead and start by um, acknowledging um, Rick's passing and how sad that is. And mm -hmm. since this episode is going to be released to the um, to the main podcast stream. Um, for folks listening, Rick Byrne, um, longtime friend of the show and the designer of our logo, um, um, passed away in October, and um, his spouse has asked that um, that people please consider sending a gift in support to Leukemia Research at UCFS. I'm sorry, UCSF. Um, yeah, and UCSF Foundation. Yeah, and you can, and if you would like to do that, you can send those donations to the UCSF Foundation, PO Box four five three three nine, San Francisco, California nine four one four five, or you can make a gift online at makeagift.ucsf.edu, and you can make a note that the gift is in memory of Rick Byrne to support the leukemia research of Dr. Neil Donovan. Um, so I wanted to pass that along and also just acknowledge that it's really sad and it really sucks. Yeah. You'd be missed. Mm -hmm. And I think he particularly would have had a lot to say about this book. So, you know, I can almost hear <laughs> saying things about this book. So, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, and also this is my last episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. After yeah. this, um, I'm, I'm finishing up this part of the journey for now. Um, I recognize that um, I'm behind on editing, so um, episodes that were supposed to have been released by now have not been, and um, I will get caught up on those, but I am a bit behind on those things. So all that stuff is still forthcoming, um, but yeah, this is this is, yeah. this is is my last episode. Right, and mm -hmm. we still are due to have a symposium of some sorts, or even any if you have general thoughts about 
what direction the show should take in the future. I'm not sure that it will get right back on track on our sort of traditional schedule, and there may be a little bit of a hiatus. Um, but I appreciate the community that we've built up over the years. I hope to meet even more people through this process, uh, both online and in real life. I had the good fortune of meeting Rick uh, once last summer. Um, so I really do hope to meet some of you going forward in the future and to continue our relationship through this little postage stamp size window that we have here on Zoom. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jeff, whatever. Sad to, sad to see you go, but I'm happy that, uh, that we can be here with you, you know, at least for this yeah. part. Yeah, I think yeah. I speak for everyone when I say I would much rather have you stick around and not do the editing. <laughs> That's what it takes. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll see Jeff some, at some point in various book clubs. We'll just keep, you know, he'll be in the circle and, and things will, you know, when, when, when things are appropriate, book clubs or movie clubs. I heard Jeff's yeah. given up reading. I, I heard that this is, a, this is the last book for him, and now he's done. Now, fully into interpretive mime, and that's just his only medium that he works in anymore. It's true. I now only read. Uh, I only now I read. Only, I, oh my god, my my brain's not working. Oh, also on top of all this stuff, I'm also sick today. Um, yeah. But um, <laughs> are you too? Oh, yeah. wow. I'm, I'm just coming oh. off of it. So Okay, well, for the three of you who aren't sick, um, I, I, I hope it's not contagious through Zoom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the mind virus. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah. So um, I guess before we move on to Accountical for Leibowitz, does anybody want to comment on anything that have, that's been said so far, just so we can make space for that? I think Robert said some really nice things on the tribute wall um for rick um and i just wanted to second all of those i just I, I think rick was a wonderful human being and i he i realized after he was gone that he's i think one of the only people i've ever like known entirely online i mean you know now that he's you know is he's passed on which was kind of weird but um yeah he he had a lot of warmth. You could feel it through the screen. I don't know if it's problematic to say that an Irishman had a twinkle in his eye, but I think it's true. <laughs> it's definitely true. Definitely <laughs> true. You know, and um, <laughs> my condolences to his family. Gone too soon is just a ridiculous understatement. Yeah. Yeah. Rick was a really, he was a great guy. He really was. And he, uh, he was just uh, very authentic and very, uh, you know, humane, you know, he's just a good guy. And, uh, you know, it sucks, you know, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll say what I said on that tribute that you meant. I saw yours as well, Brandon. Um, it's just I don't know if I would have joined in, uh, been brave enough to join in on this group without hearing Rick be here uh before i was here um now i know two people i besides the hosts that i uh recognized repeatedly uh that were here almost every time were adam and rick and rick was just so uh, out there with himself you know i mean you got to know him by li just by listening to him before i started joining in on the meetings and uh, even more so uh, once I was here myself and got to see his face and uh, how expressive and and uh, joyful that he was. So 
yeah, I had no idea that he was as sick as he was. And um, I think that's probably a testament to his life force, you know, his just overwhelming life force while he was here. So he'll be greatly missed. Yeah. Um, again, I said I had a good fortune of meeting Rick last year. Um, he was in town and had an afternoon to spare. Um, and everything that you said that we saw through the screen was very much him in real life. Uh, you know, in that brief time, amount of time I had to spend with him. Um, and then beyond that, uh, you know, he had joined after that, shortly after that, he joined our Friday night games. How Adam also got to know him a little bit better and he's been um incredible contributor to that game and still indelibly rick too even the way he played his characters and, and uh and he brought different energy which was a lot of fun to a group that had been going on quite a while and he was just fully accepted as the, the moment he came in because he just had that gift um so uh we are somewhat diminished without him but i think we're so lucky the world to have had him here in the first place so yeah, and I want to share an idea. Um, there's a there's a thing called disenfranchised grief, which is grief that isn't able to be expressed the way that we traditionally express grief because for some reason we feel like we can't. Um, it's commonly experienced with like the loss of a pet or if somebody dies by suicide or drug overdose and people are like kind of weird about talking about it or if it's a celebrity who meant a lot to you that you never actually knew in person and you're really impacted by it or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of people might be saying to themselves, well, I never met Rick in person, so my grief doesn't really count. Or maybe even people who haven't even participated in these book clubs who just have listened to him on the show who are really sad that he's passed. I just want to acknowledge, like, your grief is valid. Um, you're allowed to have whatever feelings you're having around this. Thank you, Jeff. Cool. Yeah. So we can go ahead and move on to A Canical for Leibowitz um, by Walter M. Miller, Jr. And we can take a look at which edition of the book we're working with. Um, Brandon, what do you have? Well, my library book didn't come through in time, so I actually had to buy this. So I've got uh, the brand, yeah. brand spanking new. Yeah. Never been out of print, I realized after looking online. Amazing. How about you, Robbie? You know, I have an old paperback. Uh, I gave it to my wife to read maybe like a year, year and a half ago, and it's vanished into the ether. So I wound up listening to the audio book this time. Just, and how is that? Uh, it's not bad. It's it's well narrated. I feel like um, listening to an audio book is always a very different experience from actually reading the book because you're not in control of the pacing. And um, yeah. especially a book like this where um like miller is so um i guess uh, intentional with his language like sometimes you really just need to kind of like digest a phrase or you know just kind of like sit there with like a pile of latin or uh, or whatever <laughs> yeah. and it's much harder to do that than all right how about you adam i got the same one that brandon has it's got uh saint Leibowitz getting burned there in the front with a lot of books right the buzzard sailing overhead mm -hmm. john picasso cover yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and i say it's interesting because it could be saint Leibowitz, but it could literally be any of the 
characters. It could be Brother Francis. It could be any of the the monks, also. You know. Oh yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. I think I think it's supposed to be Leibowitz, though, but I don't know. Yeah. How about you, Robert? It's the same one, the EOS trade, uh, and mine's from the library, Brandon. So take that local <laughs> library where you are. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a 2007 mass market paperback um, that I actually bought at the Strand. Um, oh, there you go. And um, yeah, it's got like a kind of a stylized image of a candle and a pen and maybe some kind of stylized smoke. Um, it's not a particularly exciting cover. Okay. Um, so you said you bought it instead. How long have you had you been intending to read this book, Jeff? In, in... Oh, this is this book has been recommended to me for as long back as I can remember. Books yeah. like, yeah, was, yeah, this this is yeah. I've been hearing I need to read this book for forever. Right. I have the Picasso one as well. I used to have that one with the Pope and the sort of spaceship flying overhead, and I couldn't find that copy. Um, so this is the one I have at the moment. Um, has anyone also read this before? Also, oh yeah, no. Okay, I read it a long time ago myself. So, but didn't remember anything really other than the last chapter, the literal last chapter, which is indelible. Any Hygaxian nominations? Ooh, I got one. <laughs> Go for it. Okay, they. They call it a battering ram in here, but that's not what it is. And they're describing the, the bomb going off. And when the fury of the sun had faded, the city was in flames, and a great thunder came out of the sky, like the great battering ram, Picadon, to crush it utterly. And Picadon is a Japanese word, and it means, Pika means brilliant. And dawn means boom, representing what was seen and heard when the bombs in Japan were detonated. That's oh. peak of dawn. Mm. Wow. I like that one. That's powerful. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I think that there's a really natural choice for uh, liturgy. Um, and I, I don't have the book in front of me, so I can't give you like an exact, uh, an exact reference. But um, it's mentioned sort of once or twice in sort of the, um, you know, sort of the outward uh, practice of of religion, which is kind of central to the whole book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many words. I mean, obviously, just the various Latin terms. Um, but the uh, Bindlestiff reappears many, many times too. <laughs> when the, in the when the order of uh, the sort of the wandering component of the order of Saint Leibowitz, when they're smuggling books and transferring knowledge. And they all supposed to pretend to be hobos, essentially. So players <laughs> appeared frequently in the early, in the early, in the early, uh, the first novella that forms the book. I found uh, Dorance or Dorance. Dorance vile mm-hmm. is the phrase that it's commonly associated with, but Dorance means imprisonment or incarceration, and Dorance vile is like extremely long. And the, uh, they talk about that on uh, the trade page 134, where he's comparing the cloister to a, a place of imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And I found um, expropriate, which is a fancy word for steal. Um, and on, it's on page 151 of mine. And it's uh, the town council expropriated our school, don't forget. Um, that was a line by. Dom Paolo in the second section. 
Um, another word I thought was he's using for humorous intent, although it's you know it was ornith ornithophagy, you know, to eat birds. <laughs> but no, it's talking about the whole part about That's whether right. uh, <laughs> cats cats could be uh, be you know scholars of birds. I said yeah, calling to to was it. Uh, Calling to ornithology, even though yeah. it was only <laughs> could a cat become an ornithologist? <laughs> um, there's a number of interesting, like, I mean, this whole book is a long philosophical digression, but there's a number of sections like that where it's a, a very compact philosophical digression within a larger philosophical digression, which I think are wonderful. Mine is very non Gygaxian, kind of the other end of the spectrum, but in the middle book, I can't remember their names, but. Uh, is it the middle book? It's when um, Benjamin, you know, he's uh, yep. out in the desert and the and the prior or the whoever he goes out to visit him and he calls him you old pretzel. And I thought, <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's good. Pretzel's good. And then I started thinking, like everything is so um, anachronistic. Like, do they have pretzels? Do they know what it is, or is it just a word that they've read and now they've appropriated it to be? Because it is. I can kind of see calling like someone a pretzel is an insult. And that right. has a little bit of a Yiddish feel to it. Anyway, it was like, oh yeah, it kind of, kind of fits somehow. I liked it. Yeah. And definitely has that sort of like connotation of that stereotype of the mid twentieth century of like two sort of uh, cranky but wise Jewish men arguing with each other, <laughs> you know, yeah. and slipping in and out of Yiddish and. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, did anybody here hate this book? No, I sense that you had some uh, reservations there, Jeff. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, as I was reading, I'm just like, this seems like a book that would be pretty hard for somebody to hate, but I'm sure there are people out there who do hate it. Yeah. Um, you know, Jeff, I was nervous about you because I've come on here a few times with books that are old favorites of mine. And like, I'm still like the the wound from Neuromancer hasn't healed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I was also disappointed with myself for not loving Neuromancer. <laughs> Um, but thankfully we don't need to be disappointed with myself with Canticle for Leibowitz. Um, uh, Robert, what, what, what are your thoughts about this book? Okay. Well, I, I wasn't going to speak up when you asked if I hated it, but I will confess that I, I started to like this book less and less the further I got into it. I love the first, uh, part and I really felt like that was the strongest part of the book. And I liked all the rest of it too. But I got really, I started to get worn down by a couple of things as I went. Uh, I, I resented a little bit having to jump forward in time and losing the uh, cool characters that I met in the beginning. And so I got a little bit more disconnected from uh, the engagement on the story. And then also it felt like it got uh, more serious and less uh, funny and also more philosophical, uh, more explicitly philosophical. Like they start having conversations about how, you know, how are we going to, are we going to euthanize these people or not by the end? And um, that just wasn't as much, obviously, wasn't as much fun for me uh, to read about. And I'll just go back real quick to the beginning. I, like you, Jeff, I've had people uh, not had people recommend this book to me, but I've always known this is a book that I should read, even from when I was very young and looking for books like this. And um, I always passed it up 
um, in the paperback aisle because I would read on the back cover like, oh, it's about a it's about religion and it's about a bunch of monks. And growing up in a very Catholic city, New Orleans, I was like, mm, no, no. And I'm not religious and I wasn't uh, really raised to be that way. So I just I always kept away from this book and even starting it uh this time reading it for the first time i was like okay you know i had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about it but it won me over very quickly so i remember the <clears throat> the the person in my life who's recommended this book for me the hardest was a friend of mine named neil in new york and i remember i was reading um mary doria russell's the sparrow and he was like oh if you like catholics in space you have to read <laughs> 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 Is is that a genre, Catholics in space? <laughs> At least with those two books, it is. <laughs> there's there's a case of conscience too. Is that also Catholics? In uh, space? Is that James Blish or is that? Uh, is that's that who James, wrote the introduction? Mm, yeah, yeah. That's James. yeah, Mary. Yeah, Mary Dora also wrote the introduction to this trade paperback version too. So, so yeah. there you go, full circle, Jeff. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, now, Robert, James Blish wrote the uh, case of conscience, and it's a Jesuit. Yeah, mm. it's yeah. really good. Right, the Jesuits are always more forward thinking, so it makes makes sense that uh, Jesuits in space. Actually, Mary, the Mary Dora Russell was also Jesuits right. in space. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Robert, did you know that that was going to happen with the end of the first section? No. no. I didn't either. Um, and and I, I, I relate to a lot of what you're saying. Um, and also, I found the abruptness with which brother francis was killed at the end of it to be really brutal and really effective um so although i also share in your frustration that suddenly like we weren't with these characters or in this world anymore i thought that the way that it was done was so effective and so powerful that i was like oh damn whoa that was cool mm -hmm. yeah. how about you adam uh as far as the ending of the first part just in general, what are your what are your what are your opening oh, thoughts? thoughts on the book in general? No, it's a lot to chew on, man. It's uh, there's a lot going on in this book. Yeah, and uh, I I kind of liked uh, what uh, Robert didn't in that. I liked when it like like when uh, the brother gets killed at the end, and like you're right, it's shocking, you know, but effective, you know. But then like he zooms way back. And it's just like, oh, the universe doesn't care that all this stuff is going on. The buzzards continue on their way, you know, and it's like, I like that they, that's that structure of it, because it's like, I don't know, it's interesting how he zooms back out at the end of everyone and you get this, it's really pessimistic and grim, like the universe is just going to roll on, you know, and people are going to die and then somebody else will take over, you know. So I guess what Robert disliked, I kind of liked, I suppose. How about you, Robbie? Yeah, I, I think um, I. <laughs> so Robert, I, I don't, I don't want you to feel like we're, we're you know, kind of uh, picking on you, but I, yeah. I agree with a lot of things that you said, but sort of had a different feeling about them. Um, like I, I do agree that the, um, the first part of the book that um, Fiat Homo uh, is is the best, right? Sort of like. Fiat Homo and then Fiat looks and was it Fiat uh Well to us Tua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh and my Latin's a little rusty, but I think that's yeah. what is it? It's like let thy will be done. Something like yeah. That. yeah. Um uh I, I agree that sort of it starts out more fun and gets kind of a little bit more 
bleak as it goes on, which I think was a very intentional choice by the author. But I also like, like Brother Francis is the best character in the whole book, like clear standout. And like all of the stuff with him in it is really great. And like uh, when, when like the abbot, it's like, you know, trying to ask him to be certain whether or not the, uh, the pilgrim that he met was like a man or a saint. And he's just like, he's just in way over his head, not processing it. And like, uh, it's like, it's a lot of fun. It's a really great, um, great bit. Um, and yeah, I, I also, uh, I, I really like the transitions like that, um, where it stops being about brother Francis. And then like, it's briefly about the, the buzzards and like, you know, their community sort of like thriving, and then, you know, like the empire of Laredo comes out of nowhere and um, it's sort of, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's really shocking. It's really affecting. And I think it kind of, um, it drives home the point that like, that's not what this book was about, right? Like this book is not about brother Francis or like, you know, these monks living in this time. It's about the sort of um, trajectory of humanity after everything's sort of broken down and builds itself back up again, um, which I, I think it's really it's really impressive, right? It's hard to write a book on that scale. that still like makes sense as a book. You know what I mean? Like when, when people try to talk about things in sort of like, you know, how civilizations develop or whatever, um, a lot of times it gets sort of very dry and impersonal and the way that, um, that Miller manages to kind of personalize it by sort of zooming in on these like vignettes at significant times. Um, I, 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 I just think it's, yeah, I agree a lot. I feel like this book is able to really explore like the cyclical nature of um, human violence and cruelty, and also the 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 rising and falling of human civilization again and again on loop. Um, yeah. Without it, I mean, and it is essentially about that. But in each section, we're spending time with like a couple of people, and in a and in a, in a, in a, it's it's very micro in its. Um, narrative scale, but very macro and like the themes that it's looking at. And I think that that's a really interesting way that it's approaching it rather than like telling the story of like, it's, it's not like, it's not like the Lord of the Rings where we've got like our adventurers <laughs> yeah. like going out there and like saving the world. These are people who are existing within this time in a very specific way. And we're just kind of seeing the world through their eyes. And I thought that that was like very effective and interesting. Well, and even having said that, they're part of this much smaller. I mean, they're almost like the hobbits. If we're going to take the use the Lord of the Ring thing, right, where they are directly affecting history, but they're not aware, and they have no possibility of being aware of how they are affecting history, right? I mean, just that. I love that little bit where the Pope tells Brother Francis that no, your fifteen years wasn't wasted, illuminating this, you know, re- redrawing and illuminating this blueprint that you have, a circuit diagram that you have no possibility of understanding because if you hadn't done that you would not have to save the original blueprint, right? When you were robbed, right? And that, so that, um, and so, you know, Brother Francis is important that he reoccurs at the end, the very end when, uh, you know, the abbot is lying there, you know, after the, you know, the nuclear explosion and sees the, 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 the holy relics of the app, you know, and the, one of those is Brother Francis' skull. I doesn't even know that it's Brother Francis, right? Um, so I really appreciate that. Uh, as you say, it's the macro and the micro, um, there's an element of, I'm going to give it thoughts back. Sorry, I just interrupted, but I really, there is, despite Miller's reputation for cynicism, there's, there is a sort of an element of hope, right. In this book. Otherwise they would never have this, you know, have this arc that goes off into space. So that attempts, maybe it's just going to recreate the same problems, but it's going to attempt, you know? I feel 
like if, if Miller was properly cynical, we would never have gotten um, that, that like character that's threaded throughout where it's like the, the hermit, um, yeah, the, the, know, like the, the pilgrim in the first story. And then the, the yeah. hermit in the second story, like that is, I think a way of sort of Miller, um, uh, I guess, calling attention to and challenging his own cynicism. It feels like to me, right? Like if you look at like, what's the purpose of this character in this story, that's what I get out of it. So Brendan, I see you've been nodding along on some of some of the comments and uh, what's what are your general thoughts? <laughs> oh, muted. Uh yeah, uh I'm just mentally agreeing with everybody. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, good point. Like when you said I, it occurred to me at some point when you said Lord of the Rings, like I was thinking when I at first I thought of this was a fantasy novel, right? And I was thinking, like, what else? Was there any other fantasy setting where characters are coping sort of regularly with despair? And I was like, I think I think Lord of the Rings is the one. Like I, you know, like sword and sorcery generally, that's not that's not what the hero's grappling with, right? Um but uh and then what you guys were saying about the the through lines, um, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but um it's a very Catholic book in that it 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 blends the linear nature of the Hebraic tradition, right, with the circular, you know, the the seasonal, the recurring nature of uh, the Greek and Hellenistic tradition, and that's you know, and that's the spiral, right? Things reoccur, but things also move forward. That's that's Dante's Inferno, right? You're going down a spiral, you're ascending a spiral to heaven. Um, and he does it, you know, in a book like this big. It's amazing. It um, it was it was a real enjoyable read for me because you know I read a fair number of fantasy novels and I didn't know where this was going. I'm like, what am I in for? Like at the end of the first third, I thought, oh well, this is going to be like a book of parables. This is, um, you know, Francis. You know, he kind of has the the hat trick of the perfect life. He dies in a state of like having you know achieved his you know, his holy duty, he's achieved his professional duty, and he is also dying with a sense of hope. He's looking forward to something, and he dies instantly and painlessly. It's kind of, you know, a parable in that sense. And then I was thinking, like, well, maybe it's a parable about, like, someone whose life was, like, wasted, you know, because he's constantly being criticized by his colleagues. He's seven years a novice before he gets to become an actual monk. Like, People are constantly telling, you know, and we, the reader, know that what he's working on is probably this worthless schematic. You know, this is not anything that's going to lead to, and this is an actual genuine, um, you know, relic. This is kind of a farce. But then, you know, you get to the next book and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be like a Game of Thrones. This is like high politics. These are like nation states warring, you know, in a plane. This is going to be, you know, this. No. And then we we jump ahead another, what is it, 600 years, 1200 years every time? 600 years, yeah. And it turns into like it, you know, a modern day, um, you know, it's Dr. Strangelove. Suddenly, you know, we're in the war room, you know, and we have these cutaways to, you know, these farcical news conferences. Um, he does have a great sense of humor. Um, so it just it keeps you on your toes. And um, I don't know, I just I, th- I think it's a masterpiece. I don't... <laughs> great. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to qualify. I think many people do. It's, although it's interesting that the initial reaction from sort of, I was reading a little bit about it in Wikipedia, the initial reaction, people were kind of like brushing it off and saying, oh, this is kind of trite, whatever. But sometimes you live in those times and you don't see these things. But it's just before the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? It's like two or three years before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, 
you know I, and I also i think uh robert and, and maybe jeff you remember this like i remember seeing this book around a lot as a kid thinking it was an incredibly old book even though it was only had been published like eight years before i was born right but i think because i guess because the particular artwork that was on the covers at the time and we were you know we were still during the cold war but we're sort of past that period of like you know constant open confrontation at least until reagan came back around you know and so i felt like okay well you know <laughs> You know, uh, this is this is already ancient history, but now it feels fresher than the first time I read it, which was about in the mid nineties, I guess. Yeah, because then I think it was sort of a historical curio. We we're post historical, but now now we're not. You know? That's right. Uh, I think but, for a uh, long time I was getting this book confused with Flowers for Algernon, because um, it's both like you know noun for name. Right. Um, but um, I, I also remember now when I bought it from the Strand, the the guy who rang me up was like really excited and telling me how this is his favorite book and like it's just an incredible tale about like the nature of humanity. Um, and I don't know if this thing that I was really enjoying um, was um, part of what the author was going for, or if this is just kind of what I was adding to it. But um, also the ways in which um, Brother Francis's story was evolving and becoming more and more fantastic um, reminded me a lot. It made me think a lot about um, stories from the Bible and how a lot of these like wild stories from the Bible may have all come from pretty reasonable events that happened. And then as the centuries went by and more and more people told each other these stories, they became these like really wild stories of, you know, um, a, a worldwide flood with two animals of every kind on a boat, where, like, in reality, maybe this was based on a thing that happened, and it'd be curious to know, like, what that thing was. Um, and looking at that, and then also seeing how religion, um, like, specifically Christianity, is, like, a thing that survived the um, the the great the great deluge what do they call it again flame deluge the flame deluge yeah um is also interesting because i wonder if in some ways it feels like the author is um very cynical about religion but in other ways it's also like the the kind of the glue that's holding that's holding the little bits of what's left of society together and 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 keeping us um I don't know, able to 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 um, to hold on to the knowledge that we have and carry it on to next generations. I don't know. I, there, there's there's interesting stuff going on with the religious piece too that I don't really know how much of it is intended or not. Yeah, I really like um, sort of exactly what you were talking about in the second book. There's a part where they sort of like um, give the uh, um, whatever, like the, the religious reading, the like sermon or whatever, telling the story of the flame deluge. And it's sort of um, taken as like a mishmash of different biblical stories, right? It starts out with like Job and then they throw in like Cain and Abel. And I, I think that was, that was like, yeah, that, like that's, that's Miller doing exactly what you're talking about. Sort of saying, okay, well, we, we take these things that happen and sort of the lessons that we draw out of them take on a life of their own. Um. Jeff, I think your point about bringing stuff is actually well taken because you can't read a book and not bring yourself to it, right? And to me, what's interesting about uh, this whole project, but in particular this book and a couple other books like Lord of the Rings, is that because those are the books I have revisited, that every time I've revisited them, I understand them in a different way uh, than I did 
the previous time I read them. And sometimes for the worse, like, oh, okay, I see this was that the thing I really enjoyed was actually kind of juvenile. Uh, but sometimes it just deepens. Um, and to your point, Jeff, about religion, I think Miller is a, a man of many contradictions, but he was actually a convert to, to Catholicism. He wasn't raised Catholic. Um, so it must have had a lot of resonance for him, despite seeing whatever flaws there were in organized religion and structures. Um, and then, again, um, I'm the, the, the histor- history nerd, so he was um, apparently a uh, radio operator and tail gunner during World War II. And he was deeply affected by uh, the fact that he had been on a bombing mission that destroyed the uh, uh, monastery at Saint, uh, Benedictine Monastery, monastery mm-hmm. at Santi, uh, Monte Cassino, um, so that he basically destroyed the oldest monastery in the Western world. Um, um, and this essentially has a weird resonance for me, personal resonance for me, because the father, the, when my father came over to this country on the exchange program, the family that put him up, the the father in that family had also been, I think, actually a waste gunner, but also in, in Italy uh, in World War II, and actually had gotten shot down and had been a prisoner of war. But he had always sort of implied that he felt that was his just penance for actually potentially having killed civilians um, on these bombing missions over Italy, you know. And so that was a really interesting thing that just like connected with me when I was reading this book this time and remembering those two things connecting together. Um, so, and the other thing this reminded me a little bit of, for some reason, is Larry McMurtry's um, Lonesome Dove. You know, the sort of thing, it starts out very lighthearted, but then it gets darker as it goes along. Um, but it starts, still tries to connect to sort of the, the humanity of the characters, even at the, at the very end. So this kind of, again, I don't know why, I guess Western landscapes and, you know, kind of thing like that. Uh, Adam, you're nodding there a little bit. You have a... No, uh, I just, I was just interested to hear the, the waste gunner story, you know, shades of Vonnegut. Yeah. 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 Well, it is definitely a title that sort of, for me at least kind of like, kind of like Francis Keystone, it kind of plugged a hole in my, you know, reading history. Like, Oh, this is the book. Right. I don't know. Like uh, Robert Harris wrote a book called the second dawn or the second sleep. Or something that starts off as a medieval, you're like, oh, it's medieval fantasy. And then it turns out it's post-apocalyptic. Well, this, this is, this, it's, it's canical for Leibowitz, which is writing. There's a crazy old wizard who lives out in the desert whose name is Ben. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. This is where it's right, right. Yeah. Right. That's cool. Like it highlights a lot of these like um, interesting cyclical things that happen in society. I think um, this is, this idea is a little half-baked, but I think about the, um, like the idea of like Nazi symbology, for example, like how like you know, um, in the late seventies, um, um, British and New York punk bands were putting swastikas on things and wearing SS gear um, as a way of being shocking, but also at the same time, like it's only thirty years after thirty some years after World War II, and I think that there's this presumption that like, well, of course nobody's actually a Nazi anymore. And I'm just going to use these symbols to like be shocking and be wild. Um, but then in the 80s, you've got, you know, young, you've got like teenagers who are now seeing these like cool punk kids with swastikas. And now they're starting to be like, oh, yeah, Nazis are cool. And then like there is this big resurgence of um, white supremacy in punk music in the 1980s. And I don't yeah. know that I don't know for a fact that they're connected, but my mind's drawn a connection there. Um, and it's, it, it is just kind of interesting how these things just play through again and again. 
Um, and this book just does a really beautiful job of illustrating that stuff on a much, much grander scale than what I'm describing. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness there are no, there are no more Nazis now. <laughs> exactly. No, of course not. <laughs> all, all better. All, all, all good. That, that Dead Kennedy song gets you know more and more relevant every year. <laughs> Nazi punch. Yeah. Yeah. So, Robert, yeah, in, yeah. in you had mentioned, obviously, because yeah, New Orleans is uh, super Catholic. It's the most visibly Catholic city in many ways in the North America, right? Um, except for maybe Quebec City. Um, what actually happened, having read this, was your reaction at least to sort of, I mean, as you said, you got more sort of depressing as you're reading along, but sort of the the role of religion, you know, and all that. How did that, how did it make you feel after, you know, actually um, having read them? So I really uh, didn't mind it once I was in it, you know, Um, the resistance was completely like uh, I did not go to Catholic school, uh, but I went to an Episcopalian grade school. So I did have some interactions like I really didn't get along with the headmaster who was father. I won't say his name. He was a priest. So. I've got that chip, but my neighbors all went to Catholic school and I would hear about how they were treated. And I was like, this is back when you'd get spanking, corporal punishment and wrapped on the all this stuff. So I did not like that. So um, that's my background. I'm my baggage I'm bringing to it. And then uh, but, you know, like everybody else, I love uh, Brother Francis and. I really, it, you know, I, I we're all book nerds, right? And that's what this whole order of St. Leibowitz is. It's like a bunch of book nerds who are, <laughs> they're the only ones. They're the only ones who are trying to keep it together. The rest of it's just anarchy and savagery, you know? <laughs> and so, of course, <laughs> I'm rooting for them. And I think, you know, in previous conversations, uh, that y'all previous uh, comments y'all all focused mostly on Brother Francis, but there the other characters that I really hooked into that were successful for me. I think were the abbots. At least I'm mm-hmm. thinking it was the last abbot that was so uh, in the last section that was so broken down and about to die. Isn't he the one that that's constantly? I think the, the middle one has a, has like it's implied has stomach cancer. It's the, um, the one in the okay, middle. Okay, that guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, so the. The people that are from the monastery, they're the ones I identify the most with. Uh, they kept me going. I just didn't think that those characters were as successful as Brother Francis. Like, I love the guy that creates the electric light, you know, yeah. <laughs> Brother or recreates <laughs> the electric light. Yeah. But going back to your um, your question about relig- the religious stuff, I mean, in the end, it's like, I guess I'm prejudiced. I'm going to admit to my prejudice of like, I'm not going to really be accepting of a religious argument if that's what this book is having. So I'm not here for that. But as far as the success of humans, the race and, and surviving, I'm for that. So, you know, I would just look at it as a means to an end i guess uh so it didn't keep me from liking the book i just i just don't want to i'm not gonna cheer on the credit going to 
to religion for that. Did that answer your question? No, yeah, no, actually, more than more than that. I was just wondering if, okay. if it pre- presented a sort of uh, continued to present a barrier to your uh, enjoying the book as you were reading it. Which was, I guess, my, yeah, my base level did. question. It yeah. did. Like, a, yeah. To, yeah, the more the more serious, like the more it tried to kind of grind down on those serious issues, the less I was flowing along with it. Even, you know, but I finished the book. I mean, I could have just put it down and been like, I'm not joining this conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I, I guess do, also, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Um, well, one of the, sorry, go ahead. You do it, you do it, Hoy. Uh, one of the key arguments in the last, especially in the last book is about euthanasia. Um, and we did, and I just read again today in the Wikipedia that, you know, Miller, you know, ended his life by suicide um in the 90s uh, just before he finished his second novel he would never finish his second novel a ghostwriter finished it um and that was this is basically the last major work he had he had writer's block for like 40 years um but it's interesting because he in those whole sections about euthanasia that clearly miller was wrestling with this idea had been wrestling with this idea for 40 years or even more right um even before you know he ultimately ended up taking his life so that or even going farther back, who knows how far back, but, you know, in, in his lifetime. Um, so, uh, and it's interesting because the fact that he wasn't originally Catholic, and I don't know if he continued to consider himself a Catholic, you know, to the end, because, uh, but how he was how he was wrestling with these, and did he have to, like, put on the lens of Catholicism to, like, say that you know maybe he was suicidal and signing like so but i that's the greatest mortal sin and he can't really put that in there and so he's having a conversation with himself in this last in this, especially in the last book um but anyway that's uh, again also half form thought but yeah uh, put back there yeah and robbie i think yeah, i'd cut you off so i think you cut off jeff i do i do have some stuff to say but okay yeah yes yeah. i don't need to jump in I'll, I'll say my thing real quick and then i'll throw it to you robbie um the thing that i wanted to say is that um that I do feel like the conversation about religion in this book is a more nuanced one that's allowing for multiple things to be true simultaneously, which I really like. Um, I think about how, you know, religion is something that is used to oppress people, has caused uh, great suffering in our world, um, has been the um, source of major wars and horrific acts of human violence and grabs for power that have oppressed other people. And also religion is a huge source of comfort for people. It gives them a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose and a sense of community, and it brings people together. Um, and I think, yeah, religion can be a very complicated thing in that way because it can be, um, it can both have really fantastic um, elements for society and really harmful ones. Um, I think about how, like, if I was uh, um, a... Um, a cynical, um, um, empathy-lacking person who wanted to make a ton of money, and I decided to start a mega church, even though I don't believe in God, and I'm just willing to take advantage of all of the people um, and get all of their money and convince them that you know their lives would be better if they just give me their money to support God. You know, like what I'm doing is unethical and immoral, and the church I'm starting might be creating really, uh, might be bringing a lot of people together and changing people's lives in a really fantastic way while also oppressing other people's lives and making their lives harder. It's it's also complicated in a way that I find really interesting. And I love when 
people are able to engage in these topics in a really nuanced way without just saying religion is good or religion is bad. Um, and I and this I don't think this book is being super forthright with where the author is coming from with it, but I do at least appreciate that it does seem to be um, from a more nuanced angle. Um, so that was my thought. But Robbie. Yeah, and no, I first of all, I, I like this whole line of conversation. I feel like it's very, very important. Um, but uh, one of the things I really appreciate in the book is that to the monks, sort of what they believe, their sort of like religious doctrine and whatever, and um, the work that they're doing of sort of um, preserving these these books and you know the sort of collected knowledge of this old civilization are um, thoroughly intertwined. Um, but to the outside world, they're absolutely not. Um, and I think that's uh, like I really like the way that Miller handles that issue in um, in the second book in uh, uh, Fiat Looks with the the character of Fontadio, who you know I mean like like Robert like not exactly the same thing, but you know this sort of like uh, secular scholar who was raised in who was raised by monks and sort of like resented the whole upbringing. Um, and, like there's that there's that scene where he first shows up at the um, at the monastery. And the abbot sort of like has this speech that has been like prepared and like delivered down from like generation to generation. And he just doesn't care at all. Like he just like grunts at him and it's like so thoroughly deflating for the abbot. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's, it's, I, I think it's a really good point, right. Is that sort of um, you can have this organization um, that does these sort of like good and valuable things. Um, but that, that does not necessarily make it sort of like a good thing or a net positive in people's lives. I think he does portray the monks very sympathetically, but um, I don't think that uh, necessarily you can expect readers to to kind of take that in with them. Yeah, it's very much from the monk's point of view and from the from the abbot's point of view, you know. And I I agree with what Jeff was saying about how it's nuanced, and it's it's smart enough that you take it more seriously because it's so nuanced, you know, and because it's like, you know, although I find myself agreeing, you know, all the time with the secularists in the book, because, you know, that's what I think, but it's like they put forward and it's from their point, it's from their point of view. And they put forward a good enough arguments about how they see things. And it's coming from a good place, really, if you think about it from their point of view, that you respect it, you know what I mean? Um, even if ultimately he would say, you know, and it's kind but it's kind of like implied, like when I first was writing up notes for this, I was saying like both the secular and the religious, uh, philosophies fail, but that's not really what kind of happens. What it is, is they just didn't listen to the monks, you know, and it's kind of implied that if they had, you know, paid more attention to them, maybe this second disaster could have been avoided, you know? So I agree that it's very, it's, it's, it's pretty deep and it's got a lot to chew on there. So it's pretty cool. I wanted to leave some space for the gaming side of this conversation. Did anybody find things that they thought would be interesting to steal from this or they were inspired um, to bring into their game? Well, clearly the gamma world slash uh, MCC artifact rules are right there in the first book. Don't they like, Talk about various monks having blown up like a whole village at one point with some ancient artifact. <laughs> yeah, with a lake yeah. where all the fishes are monstrous. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the Pope's children. I mean, that's yeah. that's definitely a character class. Uh, yeah. 
there. So, yeah, I love them. And also, uh, I was going to, I was, when I was first trying to think, well, what can I pull out of this? I really appreciated the deep look into the cleric's life. I mean, this is a cleric background. You want to, you want to think about what it really does mean to be a cleric, then use this, use this book. It was, it was really nice for that. A thing that I thought was was fun is how um, when when Brother Francis comes back and simply relays the information about what happened, he's now in a ton of trouble because the information isn't exactly in line with um, what the abbot wants to hear. Um, and it got me thinking about how fun that would be to incorporate elements of that into a game where maybe, you know, your your folks are sent on an adventure and then they come back and, you know, tell the people what what happened, but somehow that that's not in line with what they want to hear. So now you guys are in trouble for delivering a message that they didn't want to hear um, and that they're not believing because it's not in alignment with, with their particular views on things. Um, I thought that could be a fun little plot twist to incorporate into a game that I wanted to potentially steal from this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'd be cool but- to play a character that his power or his ability, his special ability is that he can read and write. <laughs> you know, good. And, you know, your NPC scribe or NPC sage has his day in the sun. Yeah, I'm, I'm just imagining that in like a like a D&D five game where it's like, oh, I can shape shift into a dragon. I can shoot, you know, laser beams out of my eyes. I can read and write. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a world that's littered with um, ancient, um, ancient high tech, um, high tech super science. If your character is the only one who can figure out how to make those artifacts work because of their um, their literacy, like that could be really interesting. But you bring up a good point, Robbie. Like it has to be the right kind of setting and the right kind of game for that to be <laughs> a superpower. Right. Um, I could also see this being the basis of sort of a story journaling, solo journaling kind of game, mm-hmm. maybe like Thousand Year Old Vampire or something like that, where the first phase is you write some pre- uh, pre-apocalyptic text and then you like destroy that journal and then you and maybe if it's an around robin game you pass that on the next player and they have to interpret and like recreate like what would a civilization look like if they this is all they had like this is the only documents they had to like rebuild on uh, and, and then and then that you know someone takes it you know the next step and says okay and what would that civilization look like once they'd rediscovered certain basic physical principles 600 years later and boom 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 so i could see this being like a a very um sort of artsy uh journaling journaling slash story game also i don't don't have the design chops to figure out how it, it would work but you can see the, the the bones of it in there i've had this game sitting on my shelf for years and years uh sadly unplayed uh, uh legacy life among the ruins where um you know it's i think it's a powered by the apocalypse game but um each player plays like a like a faction in civilization and then it's sort of like significant times you, you zoom in and you're playing like characters sort of enacting significant events. Uh, and every time I've tried to like sell it to people, like we should play this. I'm like, it's it's like Canticle for Leibowitz, the game. And they're always like, what's Canticle for Leibowitz? And I'm like, oh, this is sad. Someday, right, well, Robbie, someday. You've, some, you've, got, you've got your gaming group here now. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, you have any thoughts? You've been nodding along again also. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of what Robbie just said and what you were saying. Always that I have aspirations right? <laughs> that I would like because I, I mean you know I think about this 
before I read the book, but I, you know, like just the historicity of everything. Like I would love to have a monastery that had a history that was thousands of years old that, you know, you see a relic and, you know, there's a, there's a story behind this is a, this is somebody from another era. And when you come down to gaming, nobody cares, right? (laughs) The players don't care. (laughs) You know, it's just, there's not, there aren't enough hours in the gaming session to make that kind of thing pay off. Um, That, I mean, it's what makes, it makes the book beautiful. Um, but also what forget Robbie was saying, somebody was saying, or saying about the literacy, like it occurred to me while I was reading this, um, there's always a beat in a gaming session or a campaign where the characters encounter like it's the secret library. Right. And then all of a sudden the dungeon master has the spotlight on him to like, Oh, I can't pull a book off the shelf. What is it? Uh, what's well, a history of, well, if nobody can read, <laughs> You don't, have to, you don't have to deal with any of that. All you all you know is you have some valuable literature, and you have to go maybe hire somebody who's literate. Um, but what I would take, I guess, is I don't. I mean, I always kind of feel this when I come across a good character, but like the uh, the two headed vulture sharpshooters at the end of the first book, who are just like eat 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 eat, like just simple little characterizations for your NPCs that stick in the mind um, are invaluable. Um, I would just like to be able to, you know, populate my uh, my chorus with characters of that caliber. Yeah, I I love post apocalyptica. You know, I mean, sort of like as a genre in general, and as like a like a uh, like a gaming um, setting. Um, and yeah, I think like that first book that like Fiat Homo. Um, I would love to like play, run a game, just sort of set in that kind of world. Yeah, I'll be there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely a story game. Of course, you could do it with something like super involved, like uh, or does anyone remember Aftermath? <laughs> you had like you could have like an armor rating for like your elbow pad. That's <laughs> it was one of the ones that was like formed the basis for like um, the system was later stripped down for like Bushido and a couple other fantasy FGU games back in the day. Um, I want to point out one more very funny sort of gaming book related comment. Uh, I can't remember the exact page citation, but Brandon since you had mentioned that we we're all book nerds. I think it was Thon Tadeo who was like ragging on the monks where he says, oh, uh, they want to preserve the books, but they don't want to actually do anything with the books. That just struck my heart as a gamer. That's right. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know why, but Gloomhaven. this conversation got me thinking, do you guys know the Left Behind series? It's those Christian novels about the people who are left behind mm. after the rapture. And I was just thinking about how funny that would be to play like in a um, <laughs> a left behind style campaign with a bunch of people. <laughs> like have, having Robert in a left behind campaign. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, all game nerds left behind. Like, time, enough to, time enough to game. Break out the 20 sides. We're all sinners. <laughs> if we're doing it right. Perfect. So let's go ahead and start wrapping up there and start looking at our final thoughts. Um, Brandon, what are your final thoughts? Uh, I would say, I don't know. I always feel like final thoughts are kind of the, the, the little blurb (laughs) underneath the movie, but I mean, it really is a masterpiece. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, it kept me on the edge of my seat the whole time. I heartily recommend um, if you've had this on your to read list, Run, don't walk. Get yourself a copy today. <laughs> Your ticket pays for the whole seat. There you go. Uh, Robert. 
Yeah, I like the book. I'm just not as unreservedly uh, over the moon about it as everyone else. So, Adam, uh, I'll just mention a funny part. Uh, Thon Tadeo, in one part, he uh, he wants to convince everybody that uh, Rossum's Universal Robots is actually a historical document. I don't know if you guys caught that, mm-hmm. but like he said, they found this play and it's like the, you know, the RUR where the robots revolt and take over and kill the humans. And he says, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's what us. We're not the original humans. And I knew the, it was a reference. I just didn't catch what it was, but yeah. yeah. Was and then, and yeah. then the, the, the Dom, the, the Abbot is like, uh, that's made up, dude. That's, <laughs> that's not a real story. <laughs> And then he impugns uh, Thontadeo's character for wanting that to be true. <laughs> Robbie? You know, uh, Final Thoughts is a terrible place to introduce like a new thing that we haven't talked about yet. But um, <laughs> It's not, because it, it can be a thing we didn't get a chance to chat about that you want to acknowledge real quick. Yeah, you just drop it on the table and let people sort of like uh, do this at home as an exercise. Um But I think one thing that kind of stood out to me this time, so I've read this book a few times. um, And in the, um, in the second book, there's like the, the like sort of wild tribes that are sort of roaming the the grasslands or whatever um, the whole like mad bear and his clan. And um, like the thought that I was really having this time, which I did not stick out in previous readings for whatever reason is like, is this, is this racist? Right. Like it's sort of, uh, you know, I was looking at it and like, there's really strong parallels to sort of like the depictions of, you know, different native peoples from, um, from this country, from, from America. Uh, but you look at it and you're like, objectively, this is divorced from all that context, right? Like these are sort of like non-specific people after the apocalypse, you know, like fill in your own idea about like what, um, ethnicity or, or descent they are. Um, but sort of the portrayal, I was like, is it is it possible to like have people that are depicted so similarly to these like racist depictions that we've seen of, um, you know, sort of like Cherokee, Comanche, uh, uh, Navajo, like take your pick uh, and and to have that not. I don't know. You know, I, I literally did not know if that was racist or not. It just kind of like like something about it just kind of kind of stung me a little bit. Well, how was the performance on the audiobook? Uh, you know, it, I think like the voice was very growly when he got to, you know, the, the mad bear character. Uh, and I, I don't know how to take that either. Right. Like he didn't, he didn't say how there was no wampum. So like, you know, not like dead on racist, but like, I don't know. Um, that aside, it is a great book. And, you know, anybody who's sort of on the fence, uh, read it for yourself and, and make some notes about whether or not it's racist. <laughs> And also want to throw out there that, you know, sometimes it's it's not as clear cut as is this racist or is this not racist? But um, if there are things that we're finding in the text that is bringing up questions and making us feel uncomfortable, like those are good questions for us to be having and helpful conversations. And I think sometimes the desire to explicitly quantify something as racist or not is not always super helpful. Uh, yeah, totally but certainly the, the conversations around it, I think, can be very helpful. I mean, I think that's um, that's. That's a thing. Like I'm, I'm a huge fan of like, uh, like Robert E. Howard or, or even H.P. Lovecraft. And there's a lot of stuff where, um, oh god. So like I, I have young kids, and like the thought occurs to me: at what age are they mature enough 
to read these kind of things where you you know that they're going to read it critically. They're not just going to like absorb it and say like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. This is how like the world is, this is how things should be and say like, okay, you know, there's, there's good stuff in here, but there's some bad ideas and sort of being exposed to bad ideas is also valuable. Yeah. Um, and not trying to, well, you know, put Miller on a level with Lovecraft. I'm just talking about like, um just uh again no answer to this but he does acknowledge and explicitly talk about the the, uh, the idea of racism when he talked about the you know the various in the third book when all the various <clears throat> you know the brown the yellow the white are, are voyaging out in space but then the abbots know that they can't maintain racial purity because there won't be enough of them out there in order to survive they're gonna have to intermix um and which is not to say that he's got there's any more uh, about his attitudes towards that, but um, some of the attitudes towards women are still very mid 20th century. It's like, oh, the women are, are uh, in the, especially in the last book. And I think the last book is meant to re- reflect the mid 20th century, right? Because we always know that science fiction is about the present and fantasy is about the past, right? <laughs> like it's, it's sort of the maxim that people have to say about these things. Um, and maybe the Mad Bear and all of them are archetypes of whatever people who would arise in sort of plains, hostile plains environment, regardless of ethnicity. I don't know. That does lead to the second novel, which does explicitly talk about this. It's in the same time frame. I think maybe 80 years after the second novella. And I know it's considered a lesser work. I think it was in the wild horse woman, but I am interested to read it at some point after a sufficient pause from this book. So that doesn't com- completely color <laughs> Or, or suffer in comparison, you know. Anyway, uh, Jeff. Yeah, and um, I guess my final thoughts, um, rather than talking about Canical for Leibowitz as my final thoughts, I just, I guess, I just kind of want to talk about my my journey on this show a bit. Um, yeah, it's been um, six or seven years that Hoy and I have been doing this, and I've read a lot of really amazing stuff and a lot of absolute <laughs> fucking garbage uh, as a result <laughs> of this project. <laughs> Uh, and also, I'm I'm kind of a slow reader, so I don't get a chance to read a whole lot other than what we're reading for the book club. Um, so I am both incredibly grateful for all the things that I have read and really looking forward to being able to read things that aren't fantasy and science fiction for a little while. <laughs> um, I'm really desiring some nonfiction or some literary fiction or some just something else for a bit. Um, definitely I'm going to take a, a bit of a break from my sci-fi fantasy reading, but when I do pick back up, I already know exactly, um, some of the books that I do really want to read. Um, I've still, I've still, ne- I've never read Dune for Christ's sakes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, um, still never, I, I, I want to finish the <laughs> right. book of the new sun, um, books. I want to, uh, read Hyperion. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I'd really like to check out at some point that I know I will get to, um, but yeah, I've been so grateful for this project um, from the perspective of it introducing me to all of this uh, really cool literature. But also, I love the community that this um, podcast has um, created. I've gotten so much out of getting to know you guys, um, the people who are specifically in this call, but also other folks who aren't specifically here who've been in calls with us in the past and on previous episodes and our special guests as well. Um, it's been really humbling and really honor, and it's been a great honor to like get to work with everybody. And I've I've loved this project and I've loved this process. Um, so it was really hard for me to um, to decide to give up on this project, which is also why I really dragged my feet, even though I was really feeling that burnout a year ago, 
um, it was very hard for me to give up on this. Um, I still feel like it's the right choice for me. Um, but it's also, um, like, I guess we're talking about the religion conversation. Things can be more than one thing at the same time. I can be burnt out from this, uh, tired of reading sci- sci-fi and fantasy for the moment, and be really sad that this show's coming to an end and that um, I'm not going to be seeing all y'all on a regular basis like I used to before. Um, so I don't know. I guess those are my final thoughts. Yeah, well, Jeff, it's been a hell of a journey. And uh, I mean, we're not going to fall out of touch. You know, we may not just be in a regular touch. Um, but whatever form this takes, if it continues, and I hope it does, um, you know, the door is always open to anybody who's participated, not just you, anybody's participated in the past to come in and, you know, participate. Um, even if it's not directly through Zoom, if it's just dropping a note on email, whatever viable social media platform exists, you know, three months from now, let alone a year from now, um, <laughs> <laughs> that I hope, and for people who come on the show later on, that I hope that it is a valuable resource for all of you who may be listening to or are not caught up or just diving in at, you know, at random. Um, because I don't think the show needs to exist in a linear in, in the way that the Leibowitzian memorabilia uh, <laughs> <laughs> exists in fragments and, and exists outside of linear time. I don't think this uh, podcast needs to exist in linear time for people to appreciate. It. And so that's, uh, that's my hope that it can yeah, after the apocalypse. Here. They're going to build yeah. a whole religion based on what you've done here. <laughs> That's right. We're going to find a way to encode this on some kind of uh, easily retrievable media, maybe wax cylinders. Codism. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then people will be able to, uh, you know, hear our thoughts and argue about whether the, the D12 is the perfect die or not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a D7. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, we can go ahead and wrap up this episode. So um, fantastic seeing you all. And I look forward to um, the ways in which our paths may cross in the future. Yep. Keep an eye out. I'm not sure what form our little symposium as to what to do next. Maybe we'll just do a couple episodes to keep the momentum going and then figure out as we go along. But that's uh, something that we'll we'll do in the future going ahead. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Right, Let us know what you're up to, Jeff. I followed you from Spellburn to here, so I'll track you down <laughs> on whatever social media you pop up on. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff left Spellburn, and they just like it's not worth carrying no, on for like a year for afterwards, sure. right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right, everybody. All right. Yeah, yeah. If, uh, if we just come through, yep. we'll get to play a game at a con sometime. And, there you uh, go. Oh, Appendix yeah. N come. Yeah. There you go. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Figure it out. All right, bye, everybody. Okay, everybody. Have a good one. Bye-bye. The library is closed.